Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Chris Wickham. Professor Chris Wickham is a professor of medieval history at University of Oxford, and today he's here to talk with us about a wonderful book he published with Oxford University Press called The Donkey and the Boat, Reinterpreting the Mediterranean Economy, 1950 to 1180. Chris, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, before we start this interview, could you please introduce yourself briefly and tell us about your field of expertise and more importantly, why you decided to write this book and what the title refers to, the title of the book? Sure. Um, I'm a historian of Italy mostly uh, and I'm very interested in comparative history. So I also look outside Italy uh, and, and always have done. Um, I'm now retired, in fact, so I've got 50 years of experience of all of this at my back. Um, so I've, I've written several books on Italian society in the, the medieval period, any time between about 400 and 1250. Um, and I wrote a book 20 years ago uh, setting out the late Roman and early medieval world in the Mediterranean and in Northern Europe, um, showing how the different regions of that world uh, could be compared in terms of their politics and their society, in terms of lords and peasants, in terms of, of city life and, and trade. Uh, so I had some experience in doing this, and I thought that I would do it again. Um, th- the reason why I wanted to write this book was that there's a narrative which dominates uh, the, the understanding of medi- of the medieval economy, which is that there is this moment of uh, a, a, a great increase of exchange in Europe in the 11th to 13th centuries. It's been called the Commercial Revolution by many historians, particularly a man called Roberto Lopez, who was a, a very influential economic historian in the 30s to to. to to late sixties, um, and and he popularised the the, the the term the commercial revolution, and 
I've never been convinced by it. Uh, it was Lopez's view, and the view of many other people, that trade in the Mediterranean was really set off by the by the Italian port cities, uh, Venice, Pisa, and Genoa, sending out ships um, and taking over trade routes, often by violence, uh, and then creating a Mediterranean-wide economy, which fueled uh, the 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 takeoff in in the in the Italian economy, particularly North Italian economy, in the twelfth century, um, which matched an equivalent uh, takeoff in in Northern Europe in the area of Flanders, what's now uh, Belgium. Um, I just didn't buy this because it didn't make any sense to me, um, because what what actually were they trading in? Um, and it also didn't make any sense to me because Lopez chose not to take into account what was already known, which was that there is an immense amount of information about Jewish trading in the Mediterranean in the 11th century. Um, Jewish traders uh, trading out of Alexandria, uh, trading trading flax uh, to Sicily and to North Africa, uh, where it was made into linen. Um, there are an immensely large number of letters concerning this, which survive in, um, which survived until the nineteenth century in an attic of a synagogue in Cairo, um, and then were discovered. Uh, and I mean, th- th- tens of thousands. Um, and these show that there was plenty of trading in the Mediterranean before the Italians got there. Um, and so I wanted to explore that. Um, and part of the trouble is that the Geniza is the, 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 the so I'll start that one again. The trouble is that the documents of the Jewish merchants are written in what is called Judeo Arabic, um, which is uh, Arabic written in Hebrew script. Very few people can actually read this, and I certainly can't. Um, but I thought that I wanted to to find out what was in these letters uh, by means of the additions that exist, by by means of of asking people to help, uh, paying people to help translate them, um, so that the Geniza wouldn't any longer be a black box, uh, a a set of documents that almost nobody knows. Uh, personally, and we have to rely on other people, and everyone can say, oh, well, that's in the Geniza, uh, without really knowing what's in it. Um, so now I know quite a lot more about what's in the Geniza. But I also discovered that there were actually documents in Arabic, in Arabic script, uh, which were also published, um, which nobody used at all. Again, all about Egypt. Um, and, and these were about Muslim and Christian merchants, and they weren't about maritime trade. They were about um, production and exchange and tax collecting in little towns up the Nile Valley. Um, much more ordinary trading, but an awful lot of it. And and I became completely fascinated by these because they hadn't really been studied at all. Um, so in the end, I thought that I would write a history of the Mediterranean economy in the 10th to 12th centuries seen in a sense from the standpoint of Egypt and of course since I know Italy I've studied Italy for decades also from the standpoint of Italy but very much from the standpoint of Egypt Um, and so then I brought in uh, the Byzantine Empire, Sicily and North Africa which the uh, Egyptians were trading with and Islamic Spain and Portugal, Al-Andalus 
as a set of case study regions to set against Egypt and northern Italy. Um, and then I ended up with a comparative study that was in some respects similar to the one I'd written 20 years ago, but with a different focus because it was very much about commerce and really and, and really above all about commerce. Um, so... <clears throat> This, yeah, the, uh, the sources that you have used kind of fascinated me. Uh, <clears throat> and you just uh, mentioned that some of them haven't been studied simply because they were in a difficult language to, to interpret. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the economy in Egypt? Because you, you cover several different regions in your book. And it seems that Egypt had a very sophisticated economy in the region. Uh, would be great if you could talk about that and also give us examples of sorts of goods that they traded in bulk. Yeah, surely. Um, Egypt actually probably has had the most complex economy of in the Mediterranean from, from the third millennium BC up until the Black Death in the 14th century AD. Um, it's, it's very easy to have a complicated economy in Egypt because the Nile connects almost everything. Um, uh, nothing in Egypt is more than half a day's ride uh, from the Nile. Um, and it's a very, it's not a straightforward river to navigate. It's got shoals and so on. You have to have an experienced navigators, but, but, but you can move goods up and down pretty cheaply. Um, also, Egypt is very fertile. Um, so the agriculture produces uh, a lot. And that means that many people can, many extra people can live off the land because uh, the, the the amount of of grain and 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 other products that you can grow is sufficiently great that you can have uh, a substantial urban network um all kinds of artisans who are uh, living off of grain that they bought from peasants or from landlords um and this has enabled from the time of the pharaohs onwards, um, a, a network of towns, a network of quite complicated productions of different kinds. Cloth, uh, cloth is always in the pre-industrial world the most important uh, artisan production. But metalwork um, and um, ceramics, glass, uh, these kinds of goods, goods that 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 anybody might buy, including peasants, um, and. Uh, therefore, large-scale productions uh, that um, that are of goods that can then be resold inside the region, um, or sometimes sold abroad. Um, but but very much and above all in Egypt, as in every other part of the Mediterranean, and as in pretty much every other period in history, most goods produced are sold uh, and used in the regions they're made in. Um, and so most most Egyptian goods are sold and made and used in Egypt, which is why the, the Arabic script letters, the ones of really quite small merchants, quite small producers, are very useful because they show us much more about about that kind of network. Um, so Egypt always has been that kind of economic powerhouse. Um, it was for the Romans as well. The, the Romans wanted to conquer Egypt very much indeed. Um, and exploited it very greatly when when they overthrew Cleopatra at the at, at the end of the uh, at the end of the pre-Christian era. 
um, and um, and every subsequent powerful empire has wished to control Egypt, and sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. Um, so Egypt Egypt has to be at the centre of a Mediterranean story um, in any period up to the Black Death. And when it, and when it's not the centre of of a, of a Mediterranean story, then the Mediterranean story is misunderstood. And uh, I'm really keen about the sources you've used uh, for, for for writing the book. You talk about private letters. You talk about archaeological evidence, such as pieces of ceramic that you that, that were discovered. Can you tell us what they show in terms of economic activities in the region? And also, you, you mentioned that they had a very uh, robust economy. Did they also import anything? What sorts of commodities, uh, if they imported anything, what sort of commodities were they? Well, I'll talk about the imports first. Um, Egypt exports flax, as I said. Um, it imports some finished cloth, including linen. It imports silk. Uh, it imports olive oil. It imports soap, which actually is made from, from olive oil in this period. Um, so these are imports that that the Egyptians uh, quite like. Um, they also imports that the Egyptians need timber. There's not much wood grown in Egypt, though there is some, and iron. Um, timber and iron are probably the imports that they need most. Um, but they can do without them. Any any, any region in 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 the world can do without imports if it's absolutely forced to. Um, up until the up, up until high high industrialization period i also found that it was in every region in the mediterranean necessary to use as much archaeology as, as i could um not very many historians do this although that has changed in 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 recent years um but the important thing about archaeology is that for certain kinds of goods it can give you ideas of quantity um, for understanding quantity the best example is certainly ceramics pottery um, normally bits of bits of pottery broken pottery which which is found in archaeological sites um, almost indestructible but the advantage of pottery is that, that you can tell with with care and with some uncertainties but broadly you can tell where it comes from um, and if you find, for example, um, a very large amount of pottery from Tunisia on a site in northern Italy, that tells you instantly that there is a, a, a an economic, obviously, it, it tells you that there's an economic connection between Tunisia and northern Italy. Um, but then if you find that this kind of pottery dominates over all other kinds of pottery then then in the north italian side then you can begin to say well that economic relationship is actually really very important these people are choosing to buy pottery from abroad um and that that in order for them to be able to to make that choice there has to be quite a lot of it quite easily available um now as i said normally in uh, consumption inside a region is more important than 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 sending pottery abroad, but you can do obviously this exactly the same uh, with the ceramics on on sites around the area it's produced. 
So Pisa, for example, in Italy, uh, produces really quite a lot of pottery uh, in the 11th to 13th centuries, and you can find it regularly on all of the village sites down the coast of Tuscany, south of Pisa, uh, that have been excavated, and many of them have. Um, and then you can say, well, these are villages which are reliant on Pisan pottery for their ordinary for their ordinary day-to-day tableware. Um, and again, that tells you about economic relations. Um, inside Egypt, you can do the same. Um, and so Aswan is in, in the very far south of, of, of Egypt, has always been the southern tip of Egypt, um, produces a lot of pottery in the medieval period. You can find it all the way, all the way down the Nile, down to the mouth of the, of the Nile. And Cairo and, and, and the large city that preceded Cairo, um, which is now ruins called Fustat, which is part of Cairo now, um, which was the, the capital of, 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 of Egypt uh, uh, until the, the 10th century, um, also produced large amounts of pottery, which you can find back in Aswan. And so when you've got a situation in which you can find pottery from the far south of Egypt in the far north and pottery from the far north of Egypt in the far south, then you've got a demonstration of an economic network that really works. Um, and that gives body to the documentary evidence we've got for, for the activity of merchants in between. Uh, let's talk about chapter three of the book, where, where you talk about Sicily and Africa, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. You are. Uh, yeah. What were the economic activities like? Well, Africa uh, is the medieval Arabic name for what is now Tunisia and a little bit of Algeria to its west and Libya to its east, but basically Tunisia, um, which was a very rich region in the Roman period and reasonably rich in our period as well. Um, And it must have been a very active region indeed, because the Egyptians are constantly sending raw uh, raw flax to 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 Tunisia, um, to uh, to Ifriqiya, Tunisia, uh, in order to be made into linen. Um, we don't know as much about it as we know about Sicily because there's less documentary evidence and the archaeologist not really very good. But um, but it's linked very tightly to Sicily because the Egyptians do exactly the same to Sicily, and we know a lot more about Sicily, particularly in the 12th century after it gets conquered. Um, Sicily had been Islamic, uh, had been ruled by by Muslims since the ninth century. It had been conquered in in the ninth century, uh, and um, in the, in the late eleventh century, it's 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 then conquered by by um, Normans. Um, uh, mercenaries originally coming from Normandy and northern France, who have just taken southern Italy and extend themselves into Sicily in the ten sixties. Um, and rapidly conquer most of the island and wrap it up quite quickly in uh, at the at the end of the ten eighties. So then Sicily is ruled by Latin and French speaking Normans, although most of its population are actually speaking Arabic and Greek. Um, so there's there's quite a cultural mixture inside 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 Sicily after that. Um, the Egyptians export flax to be made into linen in the 11th century, um, rather less in the 12th. And it looks as if when the Normans conquered Sicily, uh, the, the, the flax and linen uh, relationship with Egypt became weaker. But the Sicilians 
had plenty of other products as well. Uh, they produced a lot of cotton, which they exported in, in probably in all directions, but we know that they exported it to northern Italy. Um, and Sicily is also very rich land. Uh, it produces uh, a, a very large amount of grain. Um, it produced uh, many other goods as well. Uh, and in the in the 12th century, using Arabic documents, we can track really quite complicated economic relationships uh, in the inland areas of Sicily, um, connected to Palermo, the, the capital. Um, and we can track also very complicated economic relationships inside Palermo, which was one of the most active cities of the 10th to 12th centuries. Um, and it's clear that Sicily sits in the centre of the Mediterranean and it's connected to all parts of the Mediterranean. Um, now, I've already said that that most economic activity is inside regions and most economic activity in, in Sicily was inside Sicily. But all the same, it was connected to northern Italy, to the port cities of Genoa and Pisa. It was connected to Al-Andalus, Islamic Spain. It was connected very tightly to Tunisia. It was connected to Egypt. And these connections never went away. Um, and um, actually, for that matter, still exist, uh, because Sicily is at the centre of the Mediterranean, and uh, if you want to travel across the Mediterranean, you're always going to go by Sicily. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And uh, you, you, you mentioned Norman conquest of Sicily, but there was also a political breakdown in Africa. Can you tell us more about how these uh, political, let's say, disruptions of the state there impacted their economic activities? Um, well, in the, case, in the case of the Norman conquest, not all that much. It was quite quick. Um, although, as I said, the, the, the flax and linen trade with Egypt seems to have disappeared. Um, in the case of Ifriqia, Tunisia, it was a bit more difficult because um, Ifriqia was invaded by um, nomadic tribes or semi-nomadic tribes from the area bordering on the Sahara Desert in the 1050s, um, who swept across uh, the inland areas of Tunisia um, and um, in the end uh, took over the, the, the capital of Ifriqia, Karouan, which is uh, in, in inland to, to Tunisia. Um, and although there weren't very many of them, they disrupted internal communications quite, quite substantially. Um, and after that, the main economic activity in, in Ifriqia 
is always coastal um and it, and not very much happens inland uh for much of the rest of the middle ages i mean obviously the inland they're, they're, they're still producing things um pastoral areas are producing wool uh there's a very rich agricultural area in northern tunisia which is which is producing uh grain and uh, these go straight to the, the coast um and and are linked to the coast but but the coherence of the region became much less strong after these these uh, after the, these semi-nomadic tribes called the Banu Kilau came into the region. Um, so after that, the history of Tunisia is really the history of the coast. Um, but but all the same, the, the, the great coastal cities, particularly Mahdia and Tunis itself, are really part of a Mediterranean network and, and remain part of a Mediterranean network. Yeah, in your next chapter, you talk about the Byzantine Empire, which is quite large, huge empire. But what were the main economic centers of the empire there? Well, the Byzantine Empire, um, at its high point in the 10th century, covered um, pretty much the whole of what is now Turkey and the Balkans, um, up to the Danube, including Greece, which is part of the Balkans. Um, that was at its high point, and it was always menaced from from the north and the east, and and often lost control of of parts of these regions. But its centre was always the Aegean Sea, between Greece and Turkey, uh, and connected to that the Sea of Marmara, on which its capital Constantinople sat, which is still the um, the largest town in Turkey, Istanbul. Um, and it sits there, and it's part of a. It, it's very connected to a maritime network. Istanbul is, and Constantinople was before it. Um, so the Aegean Sea is remarkably easy to navigate because it's got so many islands. Um, now there's a trouble sometimes because uh, if you have a storm, you might shipwreck on these islands. But you're never out of sight of land in the Aegean Sea. And the network of trading around the sea, um, around what is now the the east coast of Greece and the west coast of Turkey, has been has been strong since since the second millennium BC, and still is. Um, in the period I'm looking at, it's it it becomes really really active in the 12th century, um, and uh, you can track. Uh, relationships between all the coasts of of the Aegean Sea again through through ceramics, um, ceramics from Greek cities appearing on the Turkish coast uh, in in regular ways, ceramics from Constantinople appearing in both Greece and 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 Turkey, um, and you can say with with considerable confidence that there is a network there that is very very complicated very very dense and it's not just ceramics so you can you can track it in the written sources with with cloth production um, particularly in in southern Greece uh, and uh, these are these are some of the uh, I, I think probably the Aegean Sea is is as complex as a region as parts of the Nile even if even if Egypt as a whole is as more economically complicated than than the Byzantine Empire, um, but the interesting thing is that although this 
network is very active, very vibrant, um, connected also to Italy because Venice, which used to be a bit part of, part of, of, of Byzantium, has quite a lot of traders in, involved in this. Um, this network isn't quite as connected with the rest of the Mediterranean as one might expect. Um, you don't find Byzantine goods in most of the rest of the Mediterranean, um, much less than you find um, Egyptian goods, for example, um, or Tunisian goods, for that matter. Um, so it's 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 turned in on itself a bit. Um, it and the trade that one can track, which does extend up the Adriatic to Venice. Um, it's by and large in areas which which the Byzantines have always been influential in, and there's not much link between the Byzantine Empire and the the Islamic areas of the of the Mediterranean, which in this period is the, the whole of the east and the south coast. Now, another area that I'm really interested in is is uh, Andalus, Andalus, and uh, I find it fascinating that you talk about how political turmoil actually helped economic growth in the region. Uh, it would be great if you could talk about that uh, area a little bit as well. Yeah, surely. Um, I, I was really surprised by this. Um, and there hasn't been all that much work done on it inside Spain and Portugal either. At least at least it hasn't been synthesized. There's a, there's a huge amount of evidence, but it hasn't been synthesized. Uh, Al-Andalus was a, uh, a, a single empire, a caliphate, uh, with, with the caliph based in Cordova in southern Spain in the 10th century. Um, and the caliph, the, 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 the ruler of Al-Andalus, was, was, was very rich, very powerful, and controlled about four-fifths of what is now Spain and Portugal. Um, but the caliphate broke up in a series of civil wars uh, quite rapidly in the 1010s and 1020s um, and broke up into about 30 different little bits, um, much in the same way as, as, as North Africa did, actually. But it didn't have the effect that it had in North Africa. Um, what happened instead was that the focus of the economy on Cordova, on one very large town, because Cordova became really large in the 10th century, um, larger than it's ever been since in in, in um, land area. Um, uh, when Al-Andalus broke up into lots of little bits, what happened was that the economy focused on a whole range of other towns all at once. So Seville, Valencia, um, Almeria on the south coast, Malaga on the south coast, uh, Cordova still a bit, Toledo in the centre of the country, um, several other major political centres. And the economy decentralised, but actually became more complex as it did so. Um, and so you start to get trade between these centres in a way that you that you don't when you have a single caliphate based on Cordova, where Cordova is the focus for everything. But, but stuff comes out of Cordova in, in, as a kind of veneer on very, very, very localised um, and not very complicated economies. But when Al-Andalus breaks up into lots of little bits, um, those localised economies themselves become more complicated and start to trade with each other. Um, and so you, you end up with a network being built up in the 11th century, which then, when Al-Andalus becomes reunified um, at the end of the 11th century um, and, and, and into the 13th, at least off and on, uh, these 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 
steadily denser local economies uh, link up steadily more tightly, and and you end up with 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 a really complicated network, um, and. You can see in the archaeology, because there's really quite a lot of urban archaeology in 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 Spain in particular. You can see towns expanding uh, rapidly. Uh, towns triple in size in the in the, the late 11th and the 12th centuries, um, and and all of the all of the goods that archaeologists find on sites are um, are more complicated, more more sophisticated, and as I said, very often come from somewhere else inside Spain and Portugal. Um, so that's an area where economic breakdown, sorry, that's an area where political breakdown doesn't have any negative economic effect at all. And in fact, political breakdown almost almost helps the economy. Um, and, uh, and, and it's curious and fascinating and hadn't really been developed as much as you would expect um, because there are a lot of very, very good Spanish and Portuguese scholars, but, but they hadn't really picked it up. Um, so I, I found that particularly gripping. Now, well, the, one fascinating aspect of your book is that it kind of debunks one of the myths about the Middle Ages in general, that it shows uh, different regions as being very complicated, interconnected, being connected together via trade routes. Um, can you talk about maritime trade routes as well? And uh, that's what the title of the book sort of refers to. You have the donkey and the boat, so it's either trade by land or by sea. would be great if we could talk about the Mediterranean maritime trade routes. How did they develop? And what was the role of governments and states in these developments? Um, yes, I, I called the book The Donkey and the Boat because I wanted to stress that land routes were important. Um, and I wanted to stress that in that in internal trade inside regions was important, a lot of which was by land. Um, but in terms of sea routes, well, as I said, um, there's in the in the tenth and eleventh centuries that there's there's a complicated maritime network, particularly connecting Egypt and Tunisia and Sicily. Um, and then there's a slightly less complicated maritime network connecting the various islands that the Byzantines control. Um, and those two networks don't have very much to do with each other. Not nothing, but not very much. Um, what happens in the 12th century is that the Italians come on the scene. Um, and in fact, this has always been known. Lopez, Lopez knew this very well. Um, and the Italian cities, particularly Genoa and Pisa, um, they're, they're quite small towns. Um, they're much smaller than the great capitals of the Islamic and Byzantine world, far, far smaller than, than Cairo or Constantinople or Cordoba. Um, smaller indeed than Palermo. Uh, they've got very active neighbours. Uh, you, you first see that activity in the 11th century when the Pisans use their navies simply to sack rich towns um, and take booty away. And um, Pisa builds, starts building its cathedral, which is a, a classic piece of 11th and 12th century architecture with a famous leaning tower, as everybody knows, which is its bell tower. Um, it, it, build, it starts to build this cathedral with booty taken from sacking Palermo in 1064. Um, and so the, the, the Pisans are quite proud of the, the fact that they that they're sacking towns and taking away their 
they're booting and building cathedrals, and they're building their cathedral. And in fact, there's a poem about the sack of Palermo that's on the facade of Pisa Cathedral to this day, which was put, which was put up there when they were building it at, at the end of the 11th century. Um, but they turn this maritime military activity into commercial activity. But the trouble is that the Pisans and the Genoese don't have all that much to sell. So essentially they set themselves up as intermediaries between the richer states of the southern uh, and eastern Mediterranean. Intermediaries between Al-Andalus and Sicily and Ifriqiya and Egypt and indeed the Byzantine Empire. Sicily, of course, is being conquered by, by northerners uh, so they can speak Latin in in Sicily, um, the eastern Mediterranean, the the the, uh, the the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, what's now Syria and Palestine, has been conquered by Crusaders, and they can speak Latin to Crusaders in the in the twelfth century. Um, so they have they have networks that they can build on there, but they still don't very ha- don't have very much to trade themselves what what they, they they set themselves up as intermediaries and what the, the Pisans and the Genoese above all um, the, the Venetians to a slightly lesser extent do is that they unify the previous networks um, and that because because that they're newcomers to them trading with Byzantium and trading with, with Egypt and trading with Sicily are all much the same uh, and uh, you, you just send your boat out uh, with with a name of um, Buying low and selling high, uh, to put it crudely, uh, and uh, and th- and they're, they're they're much more neutral about 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 who they trade with. So the Byzantines don't really don't aren't really interested in trading with the Muslims or vice versa. But the Italians trade with both, um, and so they create a set of linkages which are actually also used by boats from Egypt. I mean, you start, for the first time, you start to get references at the end of the 12th century to Egyptian ships in Marseille, for example. You, you, you certainly never got that, you certainly never got that earlier. Um, so then the Mediterranean becomes much more connected. And that is the work of the Italians. Um, as historians had always sort of really known, but what the Italians are doing is they are connecting together much stronger economic systems which had always previously existed. Um, and the Italians don't really contribute to making those economic systems stronger. Um, and Italy doesn't really contribute itself to this Mediterranean network until Italy's own economy becomes much more complicated um, with with productions of cloth and 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 ironwork from places like Pisa itself and Milan, um, which in the case of Pisa do begin in in the eleventh century, but in the case of Milan don't really begin until the late twelfth. Um, Italy becomes much more complicated. Northern Italy becomes much more economically complicated, much more uh, much more d- developed one one might say in at the very, very end of the twelfth century. And it's only then that 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 Italy can really participate in in all that complicated Mediterranean exchange which the Egyptians had been doing for two centuries. Um, but when they do so, of course, they they can use Genoese ships, they can use Venetian ships, uh, and they do. Uh, we've talked about 
all these uh, different economic activities across different regions. But what about the role of peasants What in a feudal economy? What role did they play in these huge economic developments across these different regions? Well, peasants are not studied as much as you might expect by historians, given the fact that they're between 80 and 90% of the entire population of the medieval world. I mean, it varies. I mean, it depends how many, it depends how big towns are. Um, it's 95% in a place like Norway, where towns are tiny. Um, it might be 80%, maybe even 75% in Egypt, where, where, towns, are, where towns are large. Um, but but the, the huge majority of the population of Europe is peasants who are working on the land. Um, they're working on, on the land and they are producing um, food for themselves. Um, they're producing sometimes um, flax or cotton uh, that they can themselves weave into cloth. Um, but they're also paying rent to landlords and they're paying tax to states. And the question then is, how much rent are they paying? How much tax are they paying? Do they have enough left over to actually buy things? What you see in this period is more and more evidence that peasants are able to participate in commercial networks. Um, and this is clearest in the archaeology, and it's and it's quite simple. If you've got a if you've got an excavation of, of a village or a field survey, people walking across ploughed land and looking for, for bits of pottery, essentially, um, walking across a village, and, uh, and you find evidence that this village is using ceramics in particular from somewhere else, then they're buying it. Um, and if they're buying their ceramics, then they're probably buying their cloth and they're probably buying their ironwork as well. Um, because cloth and iron are always the, the most important elements of an economy, and pottery certainly not so much, but it's the best evidenced in archaeological terms. Sometimes you can do this for glass, but but that but less often. Um, so you could you can walk over um, well well studied areas of the Mediterranean world, like like Tuscany, like central Greece. Um, like parts of Spain and Portugal, in particular parts of and Sicily certainly, um, and find and find ceramics from all kinds of places. Um, but above all, you're, you're finding ceramics from the the major local towns. Uh, so Sicily, for example, uh, in the tenth to twelfth centuries, every single rural site has pottery from Palermo, the capital. Uh, they've got to be buying it. And if they're buying it, that means that they're prosperous enough to buy it. And if they're prosperous enough to buy ceramics, then they're prosperous enough to buy cloth um, if if they need it and, and so on. So these are signs of a mass market. And it's when you start to see signs of a mass market that you can say, well, the economy must be pretty complicated in order to be able to satisfy this mass market. Um, and that's and that's one of the moments at which you can say, all right, we've got a complicated economic system here. Um, you can do this under the Roman Empire. Um, you can't do it quite so easily in the early Middle Ages, but you can certainly do it in the 10th and 12th centuries um, and onwards from there. 
uh, I think what you just said is a perfect segue to my next question. And I understand that the next question might be a little bit anachronistic, but I'm kind of curious to know, uh, based on your research, if you know, uh, you've studied and surveyed all these economic activities across these, these regions, can we say that maybe that's the origin of a sort of a nascent idea of capitalism developing in Europe? Not, not in Europe, but across all these regions, I mean? And I think the answer is yes and no. Um, you see people investing in trade. There's, there's absolutely clear evidence for this from Italy and from Egypt, and there's slightly less clear, but, but it builds up evidence in plenty of other places, uh, in the Byzantine Empire too. Um, you've got contracts where it's clear that people that, that someone, is, someone sitting in Genoa is investing capital in boats going out from Genoa um, and is hoping for a fat profit. Um, that's classically, uh, I'm investing my money, uh, this merchant is going to go out and do stuff and he's going to buy and sell and he's going to bring me back more money. Unless, of course, his ship sinks uh, because of of um, because of bad weather or is attacked by pirates, uh, but under normal circumstances he's going to come back with more money. So that's capital investment, and the word capitale is used in some Latin documents in in, in Italy uh, from the late eleventh century onwards. So it's clear that they have a sense of of what investment consists of. Um, so that kind of capitalism. Um, what's traditionally been called merchant capitalism is very, very active indeed. Um, is is particularly focused on maritime trade because um, because you can make a lot of profit out of maritime trade. But um, I'm pretty sure, and I've got Egyptian evidence that makes it clear, at least in Egypt, that people are investing in in small industries. Uh, inside regions as well. I've got some investors in a sugar factory in um, in, in Cairo uh, in the 12th century, for instance. So I've got evidence for that. Um, so, so that kind of capitalism is always around. I mean, was there in the Roman Empire? Is there in China? Uh, it's absolutely, <coughs> absolutely standard part of the medieval world and the ancient world before it. Um, what this doesn't do is turn into industrialization. Um, it, it's, it's not about that. Um, the kind of industrialization you see in the 18th century in England and the 19th century in Germany and the 20th century everywhere, um, which is people building bigger and bigger factories so that goods can be made at a much, much, much lower cost and in much, much larger quantities, that kind of thing you don't find in the medieval period. Um, most production is workshop-based, um, is a, a single room, uh, and, or, or, maybe, or, or maybe several rooms pushed together um, in which there are people on, on looms weaving, um, but, they're, they're simply, but they're simply weaving, and all you can do is you can put more looms in but it doesn't really change the way that production is 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 developed, and um, there's there's less interest in technological change, um, although there is certainly some. Um, 
But the the idea that that the kind of production and the kind of exchange that you get in the Middle Ages might have developed into industrialization is, in my view, a myth. Um, you can uh, start that one again. The, the whole history of Eurasia is is dotted with extremely successful economies that after a while become slightly less successful uh, and you hear about them less. The, the Roman Empire is one. China has a whole sequence. Um, ninth century Iraq is a very good example. Um, Egypt right through until the Black Death for sure. Um, and and then Northern Europe, um, and Flanders in the in the fourteenth in the in the sorry in the in the in the eleventh to fifteenth century, Southern Germany at the end of the Middle Ages, they become more complicated and more complicated and more complicated. But what they don't do is industrialize, and they never were going to. That's that's a product of of different processes which I haven't studied, but. Uh, it's it's very common to say, well, these are failed economies because they could have produced industrialization and they don't. I don't believe that. I think that this is how medieval economies worked. Uh, and you, you shouldn't expect anything more from them. Um, it, it's England. It, it's not even England. It's northern England in the 18th century that, that has a whole series of particular things which allow for the industrialization process and 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 it's and you can't expect it earlier than that uh professor wickham thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us about your wonderful book and sharing your thoughts on new books network okay thank you very much Morteza. uh that was that was a very interesting conversation for me <laughs>